the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. Locally made in Brooklyn, It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. And sitting next to me in the front seat today is Yermi Kirkus. Yermi, you run a consulting service partnering with businesses and both business people, as well as ordinary folks, making them irresistible with the express mission of making the world a better place, one dream, one job, and one business at a time. You are the author of the upcoming book, One Up, and the founder of a group of courses that help make people and businesses all irresistible. You also have extensive experience with organizational dynamics in your role as a fractional CPO, And if that weren't enough, you are the founder of Moral Entertainment, a film production company making mainstream entertainment with a focus on moral and ethical values. Yermi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. This is so exciting and such a pleasure and an honor, really. And I'm just so humbled by that extensive... uh, (laughs) <laughs> preview, so I thank well, you as that. a fractional CPO, I'm sure you are aware that finger-pointing and blame-based cultures aren't the most productive ones. But that being said, I'm going to do some finger-pointing and some blaming right now and saying that that intro is only because of you. It's your fault, Jeremy. <laughs> oh. 
Thank you. I'll, I'll that, Thank that's you. right. That's the CPO talking. So you've done a lot. You're doing a lot. But let's focus on one thing to start the conversation. That is moral entertainment. Yermi, when you say that moral entertainment focuses on moral and ethical values, what do you mean? What are morals and ethics to you? Sure. Um, so, again, thank you for that. And uh, moral entertainment is actually something that uh, we are building very slowly. So it's going to take time for that company to grow. Um, however, the whole premise of the company is really um, from, from a perspective of we are what we consume. So if we consume media um, that talks about hate, that's ultimately what's going to be in our mind. Um, and to me, I believe that moral and ethics um, can be taught without a preachy approach. Uh, we don't have to preach it. We just have to really demonstrate it. Um, so I'm taking the approach of being a leader in the sense of practicing what you preach and the whole premise of uh, the productions that moral entertainment will ever do in the future um, will be under the premise of um, really showing how people behave and not really preaching it as much as, again, showing it. Do you believe that mainstream audiences have already demonstrated that when it comes to morals and ethics in entertainment, they just don't care. I mean, I'm, no, I'm nobody to judge, so I, I don't get paid as a judge or a lawyer, so I don't know what people are, um, you know, what they consume and how they behave or whatever. Um, but I'm just thinking from a more practical approach and just seeing what's around us, um, I, think, I think we have to really work more with our heart and a little bit less with our emotions. Um, I think we have to unify as one and find a common goal, a common meaning, a common purpose. And that's how we bond together. And that's really the premise of my business, helping business professionals um, become irresistible in that kind of way. What is irresistible to you? Why did you choose to focus sure. on irresistible as a word? Yeah, so for me, irresistible is really thinking about what happened recently, especially recently, um, in, after the pandemic. And I feel that now as we're coming out, thank God, uh, from this pandemic, our BS levels is really at almost zero, if anything. Um, and I think that today we want to be around people who make us feel good. Who people who, who are just, what does irresistible mean? It's simply that for me, irresistible is three things. Number one, you have to be happy. Number two, you have to have a good attitude. And number three, you have to have a good character. Because everybody wants to be around the person who's happy, who's exciting, um, who has a good attitude, who has good character. And nobody wants to be around the grouch. And nobody wants to be around the pessimist. Nobody wants to be around somebody who makes them feel bad. We could go back to isolation. It's better there than to be hanging out with those type of people. Um, so being irresistible is really somebody who's higher up on the levels of happiness, good attitude, and good character. And if we focus on these three in our personal life, in our professional life, in how we operate our business, in how we operate deals, 
anything that we do, if they operate with this foundation, um, I think, I think, you know, that's considered irresistible. I want to talk a little bit about the third of those pillars, character. Am sure. I correct in sensing a through line in your work with moral and with your programs connecting the idea of ethics and morals with character? And if so, what is it? Why? Sure. Um, so I think that character has a lot to do with attitude. Um, that's why I combine the two. So number one is happiness. That's on its own. But attitude and character plays into each other and they're intertwined. Um, you cannot have morals. You cannot have values that are going to stick if you, have the, if you have a negative attitude to life. And then you don't have, and then your morals and your ethics mean absolutely nothing if you don't have a good character about it. So, so yes, it has a direct relation to, you know, morals and values. And typically the morals and the values is what drives your character and your attitude. When you believe that the world, if you believe at a core that the world is a good place and there are people who have, you know, positive and love and all that nice stuff. Um, if you believe that at your core, you're going to start behaving out of love and you're going to start behaving out of, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the optimism and the positive, you know, all these positive emotions um, will directly be affected when you start really applying these morals and these values into your day-to-day -day life in your character and your attitude. How do you know if you are someone of good character? Somebody else will tell you. <laughs> you never know. You never know by looking in the mirror. But that raises an interesting follow-up question, which is, do you think that people who are of poor character are aware of that? Sometimes, yeah. And I think, I think that ties into that attitude thing. Um, and it does affect their happiness levels. Um, they wonder why business is not going well, why people don't want to hang out with them, um, why the world seems to be this terrible place or whatever. Um, it's, all, it's all tied in. It's all tied in because, again, like as I said before, you know, the, everybody wants to hang out with that fun, smiley, exciting, you know, energetic person. Nobody wants to hang out with a grouch. And so if somebody is grouchy and doesn't know that, he's right away going to think that the world is against him. Mm -hmm. He's victim. He's, you know, the world is terrible, whatever, you know, and oftentimes that's not the truth. Do you think someone can be of poor character and happy? I have yet to meet them. So I, I, do, I mean, again, I'm not here to judge anybody. So I'm not somebody who comes and says, that's a good character. That's not a good character. Um, what I do know is that there are principles. Um, there are principles of, you know, you just don't behave in a certain way next to a certain person. Or, you, you know, if you have this kind of mindset versus that mindset, typically people in general will not appreciate that. Or, you know, different, different, there's 90 principles actually to be specific. Um, and, and what I found in my research and in, you know, my experience um, was that these characteristics um, are really, really important. So 
if, if that answers your Let's question. Let's go back a little bit. Talk about your background and explore what exactly <clears throat> led you into a focus in this specific area. Of all of the potential things in the world you could be focusing on, why have you chosen this particular through line? Tell us, where are you from, Yermi? Who, who did you just pop out of the air some somewhere one day? What, what's the story? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the air is really thick in Montreal, Canada. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. I grew up, born and raised over there uh, for the first 24 years of my life. Um, and ever since I was a little child, I grew up in a community, um, in the Jewish Orthodox community, which specifically um, holds volunteer and outreach at a very high regard. And we were always raised that the world is a great place and it needs to be made mm -hmm. better. And that, you know, um, you know, it, a lot of Jewish people, unfortunately, came out of World yes. War II. And the rabbi who led the community that I was part of, he used to always say that um, that, that man, so referring to Hitler, um, sought out the world in hate. We have to sought, seek out the world in love. And so that was a very big, you know, positive impact on me growing up as a child. And I always sought for ways of how to be a part of the community and volunteer and that kind of stuff. And growing up, I figured, okay, I'm going to need to provide for my family at some point. Um, I would love to find a job that could help people still be of service and still, you know, make me some money that I could survive. Um, and that was a journey. That was a journey look, going through medical school and different, you know, mm -hmm. approaches and always, always just asking the question, how could I be that person um, that his profession helps people? Um, one thing led to another. And in 2010, um, my wife at the time uh, leaves me, takes away the kids. My mom dies and the business that I built at the time gets shut down. All happens in 10 what? days. Yeah. In 10 days, from a Thursday to a Monday, in 10 days, um, these three crazy situations happen. Think of it as three major bricks, like, like piles of bricks just fall on you all in one shot. Um, so, yeah. So, that was a very hard time well, in well, my life. Yeah, I, I just have to interrupt. <laughs> Did you <laughs> see any of this coming? I mean, it's particularly the business stuff or was it just one day, day one, you wake up and things are going along. And then 10 days later, you're looking around and standing in the smoking <laughs> rubble of a line saying, what, what happened? Yeah. So, so let's start with the easier one. Um, so my mom dying, uh, she was battling cancer for about five years. Mm. Um, we did not find out until the last few months of her, of her life. We did not, like, I had no idea. Um, she wrote a letter explaining why she kept it a secret, but anyhow. Um, so that was an ongoing of a few months that I knew that she was dying. Um, and we were obviously praying and hoping that she won't, but you know, um, so that was number one. Number two, uh, the business, which is the second to easiest one. Um, I knew that I was having trouble just because of the rules that it is in Quebec. You have to operate mm -hmm. in French. So it was an ongoing argument that my clients were English speaking. Mm -hmm. um, but I did not expect it to go into complete forceful mm -hmm. shutdown. 
Um, so that was a little bit of a surprise mm -hmm. there. Um, the last one was the week before my wife left. Uh, she was telling me how much she loved me. So I had no idea that was coming. That one hit me completely from left field. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very difficult, difficult Let's time. Let's talk about that a little bit because you, anyone who meets you will be immediately impressed by the positivity and the joy that you exude. And that was part of why I was so determined to have you on the show and why I was so happy when you said yes, because you really do live that credo that you talked about earlier around being positive, having a good attitude, smiling, bringing your best self to the fore. Emotionally, where were you at? How did you... If I had lost all of that sort of stuff in 10 days, I don't know that I could have gotten out of bed. I, emotionally, yeah. where were you? What did you do? <laughs> yeah, so definitely. I mean, that was an 18-month journey, actually. That in itself, when it started and when it technically ended, um, was an 18-month journey. And as you said, I started hating the world. I started mm -hmm. hating everybody. I was cursing out God, even though growing up, you know, Jewish Orthodox mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Um, I got rid of everything. I stopped, you know, all kinds of religion. Um, like, you know, and I think it, this ties in very much into your theme. I lost all meaning and all mm -hmm. purpose. And I just, I went on what's called in psychology, a tear. Um, for 18 months, I was just out of control. Um, but then thank God I had some really good, you know, mentors and rabbis and, you know, people that helped me turn what that around. What is it like to live in a tear? Oh gosh. Um, wow. I never got that question asked. So let me just go back into that moment a second. You're the best way to say it is a chicken without a head. Mm -hmm. If that, if that makes sense, you are just running after your own tail, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. There's just no meaning. There's no purpose. Um, you, you don't like, it, it's really a haze to, to be honest with you. Those 18 months, I cannot really recall everything that yeah. happened during those yeah. 18 months. It, it's a true haze. It's just like, you're angry and you're just on fire and you're, you know, you're running around with fire on your back. You just need some water thrown at you. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely not a way to live. <clears throat> what? shifted in your life? Was there a moment when you said to yourself, I can't live like this anymore? Did someone say to you, Yermi, you're kind of out of control here? Or were you facing some sort of abyss in which you finally either had to say to yourself, I'm going to jump in or get, or what? Look, I went through a period like this in my life where I also went into, uh, you know, I had an unexpected and very dramatic career shift that occurred yeah. and I probably went through a tear. I was full of rage and anger. And in my case, it was someone appearing in my life who gave me the idea that this is an alternative for what my future could be. Was there something like that ha that happened or something completely different? Yeah. Yeah. So actually a very good rabbi friend, which was a teacher mm -hmm. in the beginning, uh, but he turned out to become a friend. Um, he was telling me, you know, he was trying to convince me and influence me 
uh, to go to AA, to mm-hmm. AA programs. And I said, I never drank alcohol mm-hmm. in my life and I, I don't take drugs. And, and I just had anger issues. And he figured that if I get a program mm-hmm. of some sort, um, it was going to help with the anger issues. But to be honest with you, that wasn't really it that did it for me. I had to hit the rock mm-hmm. bottom. And I was at the lowest, lowest part of my life. Um, And in order not to scare the audience, but let's just say jumping was the option. And, um, and so, and so at that very end of the moment, at that very end, let's call it, um, I just figured to myself, I said, you know, I'm 24 years old and this just doesn't make sense. And I said, all my life, all I ever wanted to do was just good. Right. That's how we started this whole story. It's that all I ever looked for was to be a good person. I'm not that terrible person who, you know, did horrible things to his wife. That's not true. You know, I I didn't I didn't, you know, steal from anybody. So that's not, you know, my business. I didn't, God forbid, take a gun and shoot my mom. God forbid, you know, like like I'm not that bad person. So I looked I looked up and I said, hey, you, whoever you are up there at this point, I don't know what to believe. Right. And I was like, whatever you are up there. You did this, you fix it. Because ultimately, this is all I want. And if we're going to talk about meaning and purpose, and at this time, I was getting introduced to Viktor Frankl, so the book as A Man's Search mm-hmm. for Meaning. Um, this was around the same time that I was, being, I was discovering that. And I said, hey, God, you know, if I want purpose and stuff, I want to be of service to people. I want to help people. That's it. Otherwise, it ends here. This is, this is the end of it. And it doesn't make sense that you brought me into this world for 24 years for it all to end like this. This just doesn't make sense to me. And so that was really that kind of prayer that I did. And in order to calm down, I took a walk around the block and I bumped into a buddy of mine who, um, who is the director of advocacy in a prison reform, you know, prison advocacy program. And I got, I, I just told him, I said, Hey, I need purpose in life. And he offered me a volunteer position in the California. What did you do there? So I started off as a rabbi, so that, that suddenly happened. Um, I never thought that I was ever going to be a rabbi, especially not in that <laughs> stage. Uh, but they needed, some, they needed some spiritual help, and they needed, you know, like people in prison are in the lowest of the low. Um, but it was just a great opportunity just to be of service to people. That's how we started. Um, but then I needed to protect, take care of myself. So I went to therapy, and I started studying psychology, uh, because again, I just wanted to be of help to other people. How did working with inmates, if at all, come to impact your understanding of the role of meaning in our lives? Mm. Yeah. So inmates are the people who are the most, the the way people judge inmates is the most inhumane way that there is. So what I mean by that is that here are people who are terrible people. And in another podcast, I said it, here are Mm -hmm. murderers, here are rapists. Okay. These are terrible acts of disgustingness. Okay. Yet when these people are just thrown out, you know, people are very happy to throw out these kind of people. But what we forget is that they're still human and they're still people. And somewhere deep down, there's still a human in there. You know, yes, they did completely, you know, 
unforgivable things, but there still is a human in there somewhere. And there's just nobody taking the time to go look for that human. And so that's, that's when it occurred to me that I felt that because people were judging me, you know, for the divorce and for different things. And, you know, I felt that and I said, but I'm not that. And here are other people, some of them, okay, so I just explained to you the worst of the worst, but there are also less worse people, you know, people who did a white collar crime, you know, they, they cheated on their taxes, okay? Um, wrong, again, very wrong, but they're still a human. And going to prison just dehumanizes them in such, like these are the people who you want to talk about lowest of the low, that's lowest of the low. There's no lower after prison. There's just, it doesn't exist. In your pre-interview prep, you very explicitly said that you could and wanted to speak to the concept of every human being mattering. Sure. Is this why? Absolutely. That's where I learned it. And um, when I was in school for psychology, um, I'm the kind of guy, so here's the thing. I'm actually one of two people in my family that are educated. Mm -hmm. um, my family are not super excited about school. Um, they're all business entrepreneurs and, you know, that kind of stuff. But my dad told me, before you go to school, know this. 80% of people that go to study do not end up in their profession, whatever mm -hmm. they studied. And number two, most of the people who come out of school come with a lot of debt. So he's like, you go find a job, but I'm not going to support you through school. That's never going to happen. He's like, you go find a job. You have to work through school. You're not coming out with any debt. And you better find a job in your line of profession that you're studying so that you end up in that profession, um, which I did. So I got that job in the prison. It, ended, it's, it shifted from a volunteer work into a guidance counselor. And, um, and as a guidance counselor, I was a very curious person, it's, as you mentioned. How do we find meaning and purpose based on the book of Logotherapy, based on, based on the book of Viktor Frankl? Um, how do we help these people in their lowest of their low find purpose? And so for five years, I was researching what later on became the program of One Up. Um, you know, how do I make it in such a easy to digest, practical way for people on the lowest level uh, to find meaning and purpose? So we created a 90-day program based on the 90 and 90 of AA, for those who know, uh, based on Kabbalah, so from Jewish ancient teaching, and based on the Tao Tai Ching, um, all incorporated into you know, psychology, study, and all that stuff. And I just packaged it all up together and operated that program for three years in the prison. So a total of eight years um, this program was developed and operated. In Did the you see transformation in the inmates that you worked with? Massive and massive, massive transformation. I must have worked with about a thousand or plus inmates over the course of all these years. And I mean, those who were able to get out, some of them are executives. Some of them are super successful people, completely transformed. Uh, those who are going to be there, unfortunately, for the rest of their life, are doing incredible work in the prison, you know, towards one another, um, on themselves, writing books, you know, all these different kind of things. Incredible transformation. It's just like Do you have mind a favorite blowing. story you could share with us? Uh, let me think. So, well, yeah, so there's one story in particular. Um, 
one story in particular that really comes out. I cannot give of too course. many details, obviously, because of, yeah. you know, like there's confidentiality. But he was a actually a pretty famous murderer. He murdered somebody famous. Um, and it was a very, it was all over the news. And, you know, if you go back and watch the YouTube videos, it's terrible. Um, and I remember, and he told me when I first met him, so we walk into the prison um, and we were going to run a Jewish service uh, for the inmates. And so the way it works is you walk into the chapel and on the, on the loudspeaker, you know, Jewish services in the chapel, whoever wants to come may come. Uh, we do not discriminate. Everybody's allowed to come. So we had a handful of Jewish inmates came and we needed, um, and we needed a space in the chapel and we were sharing it with another group. I think they were Protestants. Um, and our room, the room that we were in was smaller and more stuffier and their room was larger. Um, so I was okay with it. We had a small group, so it was fine. And we sit down and we are, you know, conducting our services. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the window, and this individual comes and he and we let him into the door. You know, we have you have to lock it. It's a whole thing. He comes in and he goes, Rabbi, and you know, Jewish congregation. I want to sh- I want to trade with you our rooms, and I want you guys to take the bigger room, and I want to take the smaller room. And I said, But you're a larger group, and we're a smaller group. Why? He goes, No, 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 no. I have respect for you guys. This is what I want to do. That's it. I was like, Okay, I'm not going to start arguing, and that's the last thing you want to do with inmates. <laughs> You know, so I'm like, okay, no problem. We shifted, we traded and that. He came back and he, so after his service, we were still in the middle of ours and he sat down with with us. And no, so afterwards, so after our service, he was telling me, I had to do this. And I said, why? So he goes, I had to feel that I was going to do something above myself. And he went into a whole story and he told me about the murder that he committed, about, you know, his background and all that stuff and how he was training himself to be a better person. So at the time, I already had parts of one up already developed. So I said, would you like to come to our, you know, to our services, um, part of this one up group? Would you like to join? And he said, yeah. Today, he's writing a book and he's sharing it with a bunch of children and a bunch of other people. Um, the lessons that he learned that he had a bad childhood and he had a bad upbringing, you know, all that stuff. Um, he's reaching out to people outside of prison. He's never going to come out, obviously, but he's transforming lives with lifers and with children. So lifers that are in prison and children that are outside of prison uh, to make sure that they never get into the system because he was in prison since juvenile. Um, so he was trying to say not to do that. And so he's doing, you know, work in the prison and outside the prison. So that's one of the examples of one up. Talk to us a little bit more about One Up. Mm-hmm. So One Up was a ninety-day program. You know, ninety principles: how to live a life towards successful life. These are mindsets. These are shifts. Um, it's based on the eighty-one uh, steps of the Tao Tai Ching, um, together with you know portions of um, AA. So I took like. I think the remainder, the nine other steps come from AA, um, but with a twist um, from Kabbalah and from other ancient teachings with modern day psychology. And it was in the prison when I started realizing, I said, look, these people who have nothing to live for, all of a sudden have everything to live for. 
and they're living they're living meaningful and purposeful lives. I was like, what about everybody else? You know, and especially my people, the business professionals. This is where I come from. They're not even living half the life that these guys are living. And I felt kind of unfair. And I said, I need to transform my life. And I have to go look out to my business professional friends and say, and bring them something that's working, you know, and see if it works in their businesses. You just said something in passing that was subtle, but I think is shocking if we reflect a minute, which is mm -hmm. that there are inmates serving life sentences who will never get out, who are living lives that have more meaning than business people. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> you have something to say. Yeah. No, I mean, and that, that to me was shocking. The minute I realized that, you know, after working eight years in this kind of environment, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, I'll tell you, Scott, it hit me like a ton of bricks. When I realized it, and I was like, what? Like, when I saw the transformations of these people, and I was like, my relatives, okay, let, let's not go too far. My relatives don't live a fraction of a life of these lifers, not a fraction. And that, that was to me like, poof, you know, my job is amazing. I love my work in, in the prison. It was great. It was very fulfilling. But I said, I have this, this, you know, I, I felt it was my responsibility to go out, reach out to business professionals, you know, regular people on the street and, and, and share this with them. Like this has to be, this has to get out. You also work with businesses as entities themselves. Is that not correct? Sure. Yes. Do you believe that businesses have a responsibility to connect to real meaning? Oh, absolutely. Why? Oh, absolutely. Business by nature is a connecting type of relationship, all right? Um, and, I, and I think we spoke about this a little bit before the, the show. Um, you know, politics, for example, is divisive by nature. There's right and left. Business, by nature, we need to connect. We need to be friends to do business together. So business is actually something that connects. And if we do not connect on a deep level, why in the world would I ever give you my money? Why would I do business with you if we do not have a common ground? And so definitely you want to see change in the world, do more business. You want a world of a good place, do more business, but it has to have meaning and purpose. Two people have to feel that there's a good connection and they'll do business together and the world be a better place. Some business people though might retort to that by saying my purpose, my meaning is serving my bank account. Now, I just want a transactional relationship with you. Would you help support my bank account? What would you say to a business person whose orientation is in that space? How's that working out for you? You know, that simple. 
How's your relationship with your employees? How's your relationship with your customers? You know, and, and here's a great example, a great story. Um, one of these clients that I'm actually working on, a prospect, um, we actually needed their services. That's how we kind of came across it. Amazing customer service. Amazing customer service. But at the end of the day, when it actually came down to the transaction part, like the deal was made and everything, on the day of the transaction, the entire deal changed all of a sudden, and the, and the customer service just tanked. And then they had the audacity at the end of three hours of renegotiating that deal back from original deal. After three, hour, after three hours of renegotiating, they have the audacity of telling us anything less than five stars on a Google, on a Google review is pure failure. I was like, well, guys, minus 10 is what you're getting. Okay, that, you know, not five, minus 10. Because the customer service was not real. The customer service was more so that their bank account will be higher. And so the discussion right now with that, with that thing was, you know, I believe that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what it means to treat people well. And money is never the purpose. Nobody says that. I'm not going to make you rich. But trust me, if you're the kind of person that you make me feel good, I want to have business dealings with you. You over any other person. There are a million other coaches. There are a million other consultants. But if you make me feel good, I want to hire you over anybody else. I don't care about your experience. I don't care about your background. I don't care about nothing. I'm hearing you, though, saying... And I would be willing to bet some people listening to or watching this would say that they're hearing you saying that that business needs to have morality. And that's a radical stance. Is it not? Absolutely is. And I think I think we live in a society which is all doggy dog, um, who's stronger than the other, who's better than the other. Um, one of my one of my recent posts that I that I posted online was stop selling your white hairs, okay. And what that really means is that all these people like what's a typical person, a, a typical pitch? I have twenty five years experience as a coach. Hire me. I made millions of dollars mm. as a coach. Hire mm-hmm. me. You know, um, I have the best program in the world. Hire me. And this program works for people like you. And who are you? How do you know it helps me? <laughs> what makes your program the best in the world? You know, like these things irk me to like no extent. You didn't even bother to get to know me. Why in the world would I make you rich? You don't deserve to be rich. Let's put it this way. You know, that's, that's that approach. And, you know, I think if we have more morality, typically people with morality are making this world a better place. And guess what? I want them to have money. Because money helps. Money is a tool to make this world a better place. So those are the guys I want well, to give money to. So I'm going to ask you a question that relates to your fractional chief people officer rule that you often play and have played very successfully and continue to play. And then maybe tie that into what you're talking about with regards to one up and the external relationship that a business might have with its partners. And that is an internal cultures 
And I've seen it myself as chief compliance officer of, of an organization or in other large organizational contexts. You will have CEOs or other C-suite executives or even at the line managerial level, people saying, I'm not really concerned about whether they abuse people in the job. I'm not concerned about whether they lied on their timesheets. I'm not concerned about their ethics generally. They do the job well. They have technical competence. I'm going to reward them for that. Or they meet a particular... Uh, profile that I'm looking to fit within the organization and, and share with our customers or, or we want to send a message about you working a lot of hours. So I don't care about these moral or ethical things. They work a lot of hours. I can tie a direct revenue stream to their, to, to that work or their impact on the bottom line is blah, 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 blah. And what do I, right. what do I care if this person is go, going around making the secretaries cry? They're getting the job done. Are you saying right. that, are you having anything to say about that or are you, Let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the proof is in the pudding. All right, let's open up the news and let's read what the world is saying now about Amazon. All right, let's, let's do that, okay? People are complaining about Amazon and the way they treat their employees. Now, let's do the flip. Let's look at, at Virgin, mm -hmm. for example, the group Virgin. And I'll tell you a crazy story, which to me was transformational. Richard Branson was one of the major, major transformations for me when I noticed this, because I was going through this in my own work, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a second, but here's a story that I literally fell off the bed that I was sitting, that I was lying down on. When Did I you hurt yourself? Before. Good. No, but <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was blown away when I read this story. And you know what? You tell me what you would, what you would have done in his situation. So Virgin started off in the recording yep. world, so music recording. Everything in recording is all about the hype and the surprise yeah. and the release date and, you know, all that stuff. He had a young individual who was working for him at the time in his early 20s and maybe, you know, 21, 22, maybe, um, working for Virgin uh, Records. And this big hype about a song was coming out and this young kid stole the song and released it privately way before the, the date mm -hmm. that they were going to release it. Made tons of money selling it, you know, to whoever he sold it to. If you are in Richard Branson's shoes, what would you do? Honestly, brought litigation. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I would have said, I would have gone all out mm -hmm. on this guy. This is a business. And it was in the early days yeah. of Virgin. Virgin was not successful yeah. yet, okay? Nobody yeah. heard of Virgin yet. And they were struggling against like yeah. Sony and these yeah. bigger companies, okay? And he, he finally gets, you know, a big celebrity to sing for him, for his, you know, to work for with him. And here he's stabbed in the back by some stupid yeah. little kid. The manager was, was furious. And he takes this, this kid to Richard Branson, takes him all the way to the top. And he's like, we're going to fire him. We're going to send him to prison. We're going to, you know, go all out on this kid. And Richard Branson says, okay, calm down, everybody. Looks over to the kid and says, why did you do it? What was, what was the reason? Why did you do it? And the kid says, 
listen, you know, Richard, I'm sorry. I take upon, I take myself, I take responsibility, you know, do what, do your worst. Basically, he, he knew he was in, he was in deep, you know, in deep trouble and he was going to accept the responsibility. And Richard Branson said, I didn't ask you for that. I asked you, why did you do it? So he goes, you know, I wanted to make money and there was an opportunity to make money. So he goes, oh, money is what you want? We're not paying you enough? And he said, yeah, I guess. I, I want to be successful. He goes, how badly do you want to be successful? He goes, pretty bad. I really want to be successful. And now I know I ruined my life, you know. I'm probably going to sit in prison for the rest of my life or I don't know what. He goes, okay, you're promoted. You're promoted to be compliance officer of our, you know, Virgin Records. Your job is to make sure that nobody ever steals from us ever again. You seem to be pretty good at it. You probably could pick up on, you know, your job. And he's today, till today, he works for Virgin, this guy. Top executive, you know, top-notch guy. And, and Richard Branson saw right. the better of this person and saw the future of this. How many companies do you know that do that? Let me ask How you. How many people do I know? You know, I, I, I want to step back to an earlier part of our conversation that that question reminds me about, which is prisoners. Mm -hmm. Particularly, and we're not going to get into politics here, I understand, but you mentioned the political yeah. realm as one of the three realms that we operate in. And politically, and politics does guide our discourse and at least ostensibly is tied to ethics and morals. As to whether that really happens, it's a different story, but at least people say it is. And I think that the, the, the reason why I say that is because the default position is to see nothing in those that commit acts. The default is to judge. Look at my own reaction. I will own that. It wasn't just to judge. By saying I would have brought litigation, it would have been to judge and punish. Because litigation not only would have led to an outcome that would have, of course, re involved us getting, getting some sort of remuneration for the loss. But the litigation process itself is hell for those that are under-resourced. Hell. They could win the lawsuit and be broke yeah. for life. And so that itself, I myself in this conversation, was an example of this judgmental, finger-pointing approach that the story that you just shared was the opposite of. So the answer to your question is how can I ever say it's anything other than common when I myself would have been one of those people? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, this is big in psychology and there's a lot of research around it um, where, where how often do we judge people? And if we were in the same position, we would never judge ourselves yeah. in that kind of way. Just think, think that it's something common, okay? Let, let's take, uh, I don't know, uh, driving on the highway, for example. If somebody drives like a maniac, drives by you and, and your car shakes and, you know, and you look at him and you're like, oh, what an idiot, he cut me off. What a crazy sicko. But if you're driving fast on the highway and you're, you're going to say, oh, but I'm rushing to, you know, my wife is, is about to give birth or something, you know, like. You'll find all the excuses why you're okay and that other person Well, not. Jeremy, though, what we're talking about is a conflation of ideas that occurs that I'm hearing you push back on very hard. Morals and ethics, as is commonly framed in our culture, is inextricably tied to judgment. You sinned. You're going to hell. 
You committed a wrong. Your butt is going to jail. You are something that I disagree with. So I will shame you. All of these things are related to punishment. All of those things also, as you just indicated, separate us as moral beings from those that we judge as having non-moral status. What you just talked about when you said we judge people differently than we would judge ourselves is bringing empathy and so my, into the equation. Yermi, are you saying, and this is, a, again, this is something that there's not universal agreement on, but I want to make sure that I'm clear about where you stand so that we can consider this as we operate as moral agents in this world. Are you saying that empathy is related to character? A million percent. It's, I think it's the cornerstone. And let me explain, let me explain that. And also right before the, the, you know, what you mentioned that of the three realms that we live in, you know, there's the religious realm, there's the political realm, and then there's the practical everyday realm. I'm going to assume and correct me if I'm wrong, unless I don't know this, and maybe you're going to surprise me. I'm going to assume that that you're not your audiences are not judges. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm just going to wisely yeah. assume that. Okay. That's not their right. profession. They weren't lawyers who became appointed right. as judges. So I'm going to talk to the average, regular, normal person, and I'm looking at every single one of them, and I'm asking them, "Are you paid as a judge?" Have you ever been paid as to be a judge? They get paid pretty well. Judges are yeah, they don't starve okay generally. Themselves. Why would you work for something that you're not paid for properly? So who lets you be a judge? Okay, so I'm coming from a practical perspective, not religion, not 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 you know not politics. That's not this type of show. Let's talk real, okay, straight out. I feel that if we start judging. It's probably something in ourselves that we want control, something in ourselves that we feel less than, or I don't know. All that is tied into character and attitude, or some kind of miserable feeling you might be feeling. So happiness, character, and attitude plays in to not wanting. I, I don't want to judge you. I have nothing to judge you on. First of all, you're not paying me enough. Okay, let let's go there. But. I would never judge somebody because that's not my, it's not my place to judge. I'll leave that to the judge. Or if in religion, I'll leave that to God. Let God judge me for all my sins and let him send me to hell. That's none of your business. And whether I go to hell or not, I'll be dead. You, you know, you probably won't see it. <laughs> Nobody will know, you know? So I'll worry about it then, okay? And I'll deal with God then. But right now, right now, we should be focusing on who are we to judge anybody else. And the only way to avoid that is to work on our happiness, work on our attitude, and work on our character. And a big, big portion of that has to do with empathy. And I have to say, the happier I've become in life, the further away I have moved from my own points of darkness, the less inclined I am to feel the need to judge. Because it is true, at least in my own experience, judging has come. I've never come from a place of judgment and happiness at the same time. I've never said, oh, I'm just so full of joy and, and buoyancy. Let me judge you. I, I've never done that. Right. Yeah. Yermi, to close out the conversation, let me ask you, if there was any hero and myth or history whose journey that you could take, 
who would it be? Oh, gosh. That is a very loaded question. <laughs> so you better answer it right or we'll judge you. No, we won't. <laughs> okay, please do. Um, I really believe that we're all unique and individuals. So all of our journeys is our journey. You know, um, I'm very, very grateful for the journey that I went through. Um, I went through hell and I got out of it and I'm living amazing right now. Thank God. Um, and I'm hoping to help other people do that, but that's my personal journey. However, I could respond that I'm inspired by, um, a rabbi. His name is Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Um, he was known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, lived in New York. And he's the one who is quoted to say that man, you know, referring to Hitler, um, sought out all kinds of people in the farthest corners of the earth with hate. It is our job to find all kinds of people in the farthest corners of the earth with love. Um, this man, when he died in 94, um, he had he was a leader and he created 1,500 leaders. Today, about 27 years after he died, um, there are 6,000 leaders under him, his followers. So there are 6,000 rabbis all over the world, across the entire universe, um, where these rabbis could be found, these Chabad houses, these rabbis. And to me, that's inspiring. Imagine leaving behind a legacy that is 600% more than what you've died leaving behind, you know? He's living more than he's living in his life. Um, that, to me, is inspirational. And if I could only live a fraction of that, that would be beyond incredible. What I'm hearing is a story of someone who built a whole connected community through the search for meaning. And love. And love. Yes. We could probably have a whole other conversation about the connection between meaning and love, and we've touched on that a little bit today. That means you may have to come back someday. But in the meantime, I just cannot imagine that anyone who has um, listened to this will not want to know how to find out more about you and 1UP, how you can help their business, how you can help their them as individuals, and how they can just find out more about you. Why don't you tell us that? Right. So actually, you know, you guys caught me in the middle of a rebrand. So um, you can still find me on my website. Um, I'm going to share it with you and you can put it in the notes, uh, yearmekirkus.com. Um, you know, wait a little bit. It's going to be rebranded. So it's going to represent the, the irresistible part. Um, but LinkedIn is a great way to reach out to me. So Yermi Kirkus on LinkedIn. Um, my email, yermi at yermikirkus.com. Um, and I'm also going to be releasing um, a course um, about being irresistible. So the work of happiness and the one up will be available as a course. Um, we're going to be sharing, you know, I'm going to share with you the, uh, the, the waiting list. We have a waiting list for that. Um, and, you know, as a gift to everybody here, I'm going to give a special discount for whoever comes through here. So let me know that you came from the awesome Scott Mason, um, because I want to give gifts to Scott Mason. He's the greatest. I just love the energy. So just for that. Um, but yeah, if there's any way I could help and be of service. I want to say this, you and I met through LinkedIn and it was a classic case of where we through 
mutual connections. I don't even know how exactly, but we came across each other's content. We kept commenting on each other's content, or maybe I would comment on your comments on someone else's, or you would do the same with me. And then we connected and had a meaningful conversation. And that's led to what I think has been a very special episode. And I'm so glad to be able to share your message with my audience. Yermi, it has been great taking a ride with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. And for everybody tuning in, if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review or a comment on YouTube. And I will see you next time for another trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. Locally made in Brooklyn, It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors, luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is.